Hey, I'm so excited and uh, as Gav revealed in the interview, I've been traveling for four weeks in the States and normally my life is so bland that I would never get to say I'm just flown in from New York. But actually this time it's true and um, that's really cool except it just means I'm jet lagged and quite likely to be incoherent this morning. And I don't know what I'm going to be like at four o'clock, but stay tuned because it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, And just to keep the general mood of awkwardness going that I've already started to cultivate, I'm going to be spending a lot of time today speaking about my desires, which if I were you, I'd be seriously worried about where this talk is going to go because you probably don't want much detail on my desires, not on a Sunday morning or any other day of the week. Uh, But if you really want to understand a person like me, or like you, then ultimately you're going to have to get acquainted with the desires that really drive me. Because desires define us. I was reading a book the other day by a Canadian philosopher, a guy called James K.A. Smith, and, and the book is called You Are What You Love. And in that book, Smith says, to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. And you are what you love. Now, as a working academic, I want to really believe that people are driven by their thinking. Because, like, that's my job. And I love to believe that my thinking is what shapes everything about me. But the truth is that underneath it all, my desires are what really shape me. My desires even shape my thoughts. And we are desiring creatures. If we reflect for a moment, we're a bundle of strong desires. Like I'll drive halfway across town just to get the right kind of Lebanese food, okay? When I was in California, I waited 45 minutes in a car to get an In-N-Out burger. Okay, why have you tasted one? Then you'll know why, because my desire for good food radically shapes my practice of life, but it's more than food, isn't it? Like my desire for significance is what drives my chasing of certain jobs. In relationships, it's my desire for companionship that will make me do extraordinary and weird things just to keep and get companions. Our desire for sex can be so strong that it messes with our heads and gets us bent out of shape. Your desires are like this profound clue to who you are, but like a mystery novel, just because you have all the clues doesn't necessarily mean you know how to put them together. And so our desires are a clue, but what is the story that makes sense of this bundle of desires that is me? Is there a narrative that explains me and explains the world and explains everything? Because what's the story that you're living out of? If I was to ask you the question, who are you? You would tell me a story. You would tell me about your past. You would tell me about your present you'd tell me about your hopes for the future. And if I asked you like a big philosophical question, like what does it mean to be human? Which we tend not to ask one another that much, but occasionally we will. 
And if you ask, what does it mean to be human, you'll probably end up telling me a story. You'll end up telling me where humanity has come from and where we are now and where we're heading as a race, a category. Because when we want to express something meaningful, story is the language we use. Story is the language we use. Please understand, I don't mean story in terms of fiction. I mean something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That's all a story is. And stories are the truest way of making sense of the world. From the individual level of my story to the cosmic level of the world's story. And so, how do you explain why your heart wants and desires what it does? How do you explain that you're compelled by desires that you actually find really hard to satisfy? I want to be bold today and say, some of you need a better story than the one you're living right now. And the primary way God communicates to us in the Bible beyond all the endless little minutiae of detail, the primary way that God is communicating to us in the Bible is through a story. The whole thing is a large story. 70% of the Bible or thereabouts is narrative or something like that. God knows you need to understand where you came from, where you are right now, and where you're going. And so that is how he communicates to us predominantly in the Bible. And so the, the rest of this series, the whole of this series is going going to be about unpacking that big story for you, the big plot points in the story. And today my job is to speak with you about the beginning. And that's good because beginnings are so important to stories. Like beginnings set agendas, beginnings define things from the start. And if there's one word that dominates the beginning of the Bible, it's in the beginning, it's all good good. Life is good. This word keeps on being repeated throughout the start of the storyline of the Bible. It's good. It's good. It's good. And this needs to be emphasized because if we're being really honest, our contemporary cultural moment, it kind of assumes that God majors on the negative, that that's what God's about, that like kind of God's first word is no, and like his deepest fear is that somehow, somewhere, somebody's enjoying themselves. Like, he's out to stop that and say, put that away. I mean, when you encounter the stereotypical Christian character in popular culture, it's generally not someone who's trying to suck the marrow out of life and kind of get it all going on, you know. I mean, the chief and best representative of contemporary Christianity in popular culture for 30 years has been Flanders from The Simpsons. And Flanders, whatever else he believes about the world, it's not so much that it's good as that it's dangerous, And so therefore, there is this sense in which God is sometimes seen as a prude, a naysayer, an obstacle to fun, a a barrier to delight. But here's the thing, nothing in the rest of the Bible makes sense unless you start with goodness. Nothing in the rest of the Bible makes sense unless you start with goodness and with God saying yes. Because every command that comes afterwards, every prohibition, all the stuff that looks like God is trying to restrict is actually only seen properly in light of the fact that God is desiring to promote and protect the goodness of his creation and your flourishing. That is what his commands are about. That is what his negations are about. They are always set in the context of the ultimate positive goal. The Bible from its very first pages is trying to say God is for us, not against us. 
God is for life. God is for beauty. He is for our flourishing. And I want to say, and and this applies to you whether you see yourself as a Christian or a non-Christian. I want to ask you the question, do you know that God is for you, friend? You can see its evidence all about in that section of the Bible which was read for us before. And that brings me back to my original point about desires. You see in this chapter, chapter 2 of Genesis, that God affirms a number of our desires which drive us. And maybe you've never heard anybody say this from a pulpit before. Like, for example, point number one, our desire to delight in the world is true. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Perhaps one of the strongest desires within all of us is the intuition that life is meant to be delightful. Like our eyes seem to be made to behold beauty. And our tongues seem to be wired up to taste the goodness of food. And Genesis says, this world is meant to bring you delight. It says, the trees were deliberately made pleasing in appearance and good for food. See, it dawned on me a few years ago, if, if, if this world is merely meant to be functional, then God is inefficient. You see, because he could have designed sexuality to be purely functional. He, he could have given us eyes that only see grayscale. He, he could have designed food to be tasteless. And instead, God made mangoes. What kind of a God makes mangoes? A very, very good God. Okay? I recognize that life isn't always delightful. In fact, life is often pain and brokenness, and there's an overwhelming sense that things just aren't working out, and you're going to go to that particular topic next week. But you see, that's just the point. When we feel pain, we feel it as if things aren't working out right. We feel it as in this is not the way it's supposed to be. It shouldn't be like this. Deep down in our gut, we feel it shouldn't be this screwed up. And so when we crack through to actually experiencing delight, we intuitively feel within our gut, this is what I was meant for. I was meant for joy. I was meant for this. I'm wired up for these experiences of pleasure. And my guess is we all have those moments in life, and they are only moments, I grant you, when your heart sings and your body is happy and there's no sense in which you feel like you have to argue for that delight. You just take it. So like at the start of the year, I turned 40 and I decided with a bunch of friends to hike the Milford Track in New Zealand. This is un. Unbelievable. This is next level. You know how the problem with holidays is you always fear the reality won't match the brochure. And you're kind of like you're sitting there going, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be amazing. And then you kind of get there and go, it's all right. 
this was better than I expected. And I had incredibly high expectations. And it was better. It was so amazing. And it had so many beautiful moments on the Milford track that by day two, we determined we had run out of wows. Like, you know when you laugh so hard that you run out of laughs? Have you ever had that experience? It's an amazing story. I seriously don't have any more laughs. Please stop telling jokes. Okay. Milford was like that, except it was for wows. Because it felt like every time you turned a corner and you saw another waterfall, you're like, oh, wow. And then like, you'd be, oh, wow. And it's like, wow, wow, wow. And like, by the second day, we just, we were out of wows. We just kind of walked out and going, it was amazing. And at no point on that trip did my friends turn to me ever and say, do you think we should find this beautiful? Like, what's the argument for it being beautiful? We just went, it is. Like, nobody was trying to whip up feelings of awe and wonder. You just felt it immediately. It was just this sense, this is really good. My eyes were made to see beauty like this. And to just drink it in and go, yes. And what the Bible says is right at its very beginning is that you were made for that delight. Humanity is intentionally placed in a garden of delight to enjoy it and to work it and to cultivate it and to find it endlessly, endlessly beautiful and wonderful and refreshing. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. The Lord God caused to grow. And then said, you work it, take care of it. Enjoy it. So your desire for delight is not false. It's not random. It's a gift. It's a design feature. That was point one. Second point, our desire to find delight in other people is true. One of the most overwhelming desires in our life is not simply to fulfill our desires on our own, but it's to experience the delight of having companions. Such a beautiful word, companion. I like using it because actually in its etymology, I don't know if you know this, the etymology of the word companion is someone who you break bread with. And I love that idea of the word of companion because it points out the fact that the companion is the one you want to share a meal with. And the intersection of that with my previous point is the stuff of life is only truly enjoyed when you get to enjoy it with others. I get it, you can have all sorts of fun on your own. I'm an introvert, I like being on my own a lot. And there are so many hassles to to hanging out with others and on your own you can do it your own way. I get that and yet here's what I find. When I'm in the midst of an amazing meal, when I'm in the midst of seeing an amazing sight, when I'm in the midst of doing something wonderful, my first thought is I wish there was someone else I could be doing this with. And that doesn't have to be a romantic partner. We just want someone or many someones to share the experience. So hiking Milford was great. Hiking it with four of my best friends, amazing. And so we have this overwhelming desire to delight in the things of this world. And we have this overwhelming desire to find meaning and significance and satisfaction through relationships. And again, God says, you were made for that delight. Genesis 2 says, verses 18 and 19, I've got a slightly different translation. I mucked that up. Don't worry. It's fairly similar. 
Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. Verse 19, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky, brought each to the man to see what he would call it. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and he closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. Now, this little passage establishes all sorts of things. First of all, that the world is never good enough until women are present. Okay, that is a sure and certain truth that creation was not complete until there was male and female. But secondly, the major point of the passage is it isn't good to be alone. Now, people often read that passage as if it's entirely or at least mostly about sex. And I get why people do that, because sex is definitely included in the equation here, but not in the sense that unless you're having sex, you will always feel alone. That is a complete misreading of the passage. Rather, the point here is that this little community of man and woman will enable the multiplication of human community so that companionship might spread, irrespective of whether we are in sexual relationship or not. The point here is not so much about the desire for sex, as it is about the desire for companionship. Because Jesus never had sex, but he did have companions. Sex is not the essence of companionship. We were made to delight in this world. We were made to delight in one another. And these are desires that rage within us, and in their origin they are good desires. That's all true. So what's the problem? The problem is we stop there. The problem is that these good desires are actually meant to point beyond themselves to the goodness of the one who gave them to us. At the center of the Garden of Eden was not just beautiful trees and not just beautiful people, but also a beautiful God with whom that first human couple could walk and talk. And the beauty of the landscape was trying to point you to the beauty of of the Creator. And the joy of experiencing those things, whether it be stuff, whether it be people, is that ultimately it also points you to the fact of the God who is generous and who wants to know you intimately. And so C.S. Lewis said, and this was in the video beforehand, C.S. Lewis once said, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. They are, the thing, they are not the thing themselves. They are the only the scent of a flower we have not heard, the echo of a tune we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. The joy of your desires for the things and people of this world is not a terminal joy. It doesn't stop with them but through them you get to see the glory of the Creator who made things and made them. The joy is that these good things are ultimately meant to point you to the one who made all this for his glory and for your flourishing. And we think that delighting in things 
And delighting in people is the sum total of the delight we are meant to be made for. And this is where the message of the gospel of Jesus crashes through. And through our limited horizons and says, you were meant to live for so much more. To truly enjoy creation, you need to know the beautiful and good creator. One of the great fears that people have about knowing God is that somehow getting to know him will take you away from the world and away from people. But on the contrary, knowing Christ gives you everything back as a love gift from the creator. That's what I was talking about before in terms of change perspective. Your life becomes this overwhelming experience of thanksgiving. But what if I don't feel that need to worship God? I mean, people talk about this God-shaped hole, but I don't have one, Mark. I mean, most of the people I talk to don't express a need for God. So if my most fundamental desire and need is to know God, how come I can't feel it? And I guess that's a good point. That's a really good point. It's a strong point, but let me suggest at least two things in response. First, I want to suggest that human beings are often far too easily pleased. Have you ever had that experience when people believe they've reached the summit and all they've done is they've made base camp. Have you ever had that experience? Let me, let me illustrate it for you. I grew up in the northwestern suburbs of Sydney, that beautiful tract of suburbia where houses are made enormous and backyards are made smaller because it's better to play cricket in your master bedroom than in the backyard. <laughs> That's the world I grew up in, okay? And, and in the northwest suburbs, people thought coffee meant Gloria Jean. And then someone took me to a cafe in Newtown one day. And I saw the light. <laughs> and I went home to evangelize a stubborn and stiff-necked people <laughs> who were sitting there ordering their cup of chino and asking, could you make it extra hot? Do you know how frustrating it is to tell someone there's something better for you. There's a new day on the horizon. There's a taste you haven't experienced. And for them to reply, no thanks, I'm happy with my caramel latte. <laughs> I just don't think it can get better than my cup of Gloria jeans and my overpriced carrot cake, you know? I've hit Pete. And you want to say to them, you are far too easily pleased. I'm suggesting we do that with God. We close off our hearts to his presence. We screen him out with our framework. And we convince ourselves that what I have here, it's enough. But you were made for something more. You were made to delight in creation because you first knew the creator. And underneath those surface desires for sex and food and ambition is a desire far deeper and far bigger that will truly satisfy your soul. This is why G.K. Chesterton once said, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. But you could substitute any number of words in there 
for the word brothel. And still it would be true. Every person knocking on the door of dot, dot, dot is looking for God. Because the ultimate beauty is not just in the things themselves. It's seeing and savoring the beauty of the one who made all things. Which leads me to my second suggestion. Not only are we far too easily pleased, more than that, when you don't know the God who made all things, you will find delight in this world will end up crushing you. Let me try and explain. It's because in the absence of God, you try and replace God. Without God, what we do is we take good gifts and we turn them into idols. And so the US novelist David Foster Wallace, no Christian, he kind of nailed this point in a speech he gave in 2005. Foster Wallace said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths because they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. You know one of the greatest psychological fears of people who work at Cambridge? It's the fear that somebody someday is going to knock on their door and go, you're actually not meant to be here. Most Cambridge academics think that. The people at the top of the tree. Because without God, your desires become disordered and you make the fatal mistake of taking a good thing and you turn it into an ultimate thing. Let me explain. She's not here, so I'm not trying to earn brownie points. I adore my wife. I genuinely adore my wife. I think my wife is spectacular. Like, I am ridiculously attracted to my wife. And yet, I've got to level with you. My wife is a wonderful gift. She makes a horrible God. The moment I start worshipping her, and I'm not joking that that's actually a distinct possibility on some days, The moment I start worshipping her is the point at which I get lost and she gets hurt. Because she can't take the place of God in my life. She can't secure my identity. She can't carry my sins away. She can't ground my identity and my worth. She can't do that. She's not meant to carry that burden. She's not designed for that job. And you know what it's like when you try and make something or someone the carrier of ultimate significance and value, and it just can't do that for you. It's good, but it can't be God. You imagine that that job that will give you all your satisfaction that you need, or that romantic relationship that will meet all your desires, or that holiday in South America where you'll find yourself and everything will just come together and it will solve the ache in your soul and every damn time you do it, you find a God that fails. You find a God that fails because a job is a precious gift but it's a horrible God. And a holiday is a precious gift but it's a horrible God. And sex is a precious gift but it cannot bear the weight of your worship. 
And so you were made to worship the God who made you and who loves you. And your desires were meant for something larger than just life on the horizontal plane. You were made for God. You were designed for the Creator. And when you know the Creator, you don't lose the world. You don't lose your companions. You get all that stuff back. But now you see it as a gift. Friend, as I close, I want to reiterate, you are what you love. You are what you love. Your desires to delight in life are not wrong. But this world can't satisfy all your desires. He's the one your heart desires. There is a truth, and this is a truth, that can only ultimately be understood in experience. I can argue for great coffee till I'm blue in the face, and I probably will. But at some point, you've got to actually reach out and taste it for yourself. I can tell you that hiking Milford is amazing. You can look at the photos. But you're not going to feel what I felt unless you go there. I can show you the logic of your need for God. But at some point, you need to taste and see for yourself. And I believe that God is, is working today by the power of His Spirit. And God says that in His Word. He says that the Spirit is here to stir up in us affections that lead us towards Him. And those are all sorts of things. The Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Spirit enables us to see the beauty of Christ. And the Spirit, as we respond to Christ, pours out the love of God into our hearts by faith. And so I'm going to pray that if the Spirit is prompting you today, that you would respond. Not because God is here because you've got a weird feeling, but rather because God is real, those feelings point to something that is true. The great C.S. Lewis once said, look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. With him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you that you're good. And we see your goodness from the first page to the last page of the Bible. We see that you're for us from page one. And that you've made a world for us to delight in. You've made other people for us to delight in. And then undergirding all of that is for us to delight in you and to have you as the ultimate. And to put you at the top does not take away all those other things. It rather puts them in the right order and enables us to cherish them fully. And we come to you now, Father, knowing that for many of us, something else is in that place. We've oriented and orbited some other goal. And we've wanted something else in place of you. And we want to lay that aside. We want to not be in love with that. We want to love you first and receive everything back as a gift. We ask that if you're calling us right now, 
put something aside or to for the first time reach out and say, you're real and I can taste and see that the Lord is good, that you would do that in our hearts right now. We ask that you would confirm to us who you are, make clear to us the glory of God in the face of Christ and that we would respond to you in faith, trusting you and knowing that in you is our identity, it's our worth, and that in you is not lack but life. In you is not absence but presence. In you is all that we could ask for and desire. And so we ask that you would cause us to respond right now to the good news that starts on page one in your Bible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.